First of all, let me give you a couple of comments uh, on the conference. A few people have been asking me about that. And for those of you who don't know, I was just away in California at a uh, conference out there, and there were 12 other men that went. And uh, some of the men that have been asking me, I would encourage you to set that aside if you can join. The, the conference is designed for pastors and elders, but it would benefit any man that would like to go and uh, if you can set that aside, it's always the first week in March. It was a real blessing, and I encourage you men that might be considering going for next year that want to join us, talk to the men who have gone there. And if you can't find some of the men that went out, here's why. Well, it was interesting. We went out to the conference, and we got ready for an evening message, and the men sat down with real eagerness, and Al Mola came to the pulpit and said, Open your Bibles to John chapter 9. And so these men have heard John chapter 9 for a couple of weeks already from me. They went out and heard it from Al Mola. Then they had to come back and hear it from me again. And so some of the men may be sleeping in our home or they may be sleeping in the pew because they've heard it. One of the men turned around and said, Pastor Dan, take good notes. So they could get a good message for today. But uh, um, anyway, so it's rather interesting. The Lord must have something for us in John chapter 9. The one thing I was encouraged by it, above everything else, is he said, how could anybody come to this passage and speak or give a small message? And he must have repeated that 25 times during his message. You cannot preach a small message. Well, to get in what I want to get in today is going to be a challenge, especially with the time, and this is only the third message on it. But let's get back to the text and let's see what's going on here. But before I do, another passage that I had, and anyone that hears anything that I already told them in this that overlaps, I had my message prepared before Al Mohler, as far as I know. Okay? But Psalm 66, let's turn there. Psalm 66. I want us to look at this before we go into the dialogue that's here today before us. Psalm 66, verses 1 through 7, I wanted us to just take a glance at, and we'll get right back to the text. Shout joyfully to God all the earth, sing the glory of his name. Make his praise glorious. Now watch verse 3. Say to God, how awesome are your works. Because of the greatness of your power, your enemies will give fiend obedience to you. All the earth will worship you and will sing praise to you. They will sing praise to your name. Verse 5. Come and see the works of God, who is awesome in his deeds toward the sons of men. He turned the sea. Now, this is specific to Israel. He turned the sea into dry land. They passed through the river on foot. There let us rejoice in him. Verse 7. He rules by his might forever. His eyes keep watch on the nations. Let not the rebellious exalt themselves. When I studied this passage, I could not resist but go back to Psalm 66. Because Psalm 66 tells us that we are to rejoice when we see the awesome work that God is doing. 
And that those who are rebellious against God are not to exalt themselves. And if ever we had a picture of that, in my opinion, it's in John chapter 9. In John chapter 9, when the works of God are made manifest in the person of Jesus Christ by a physical healing that's remarkable, that, to use the words of Scripture from the psalmist, is awesome and ought to cause the voice of all the people to joyfully sing praise to God when it does not do that. In fact, it does just what verse 7 says should not happen. For the rebellious of heart, those who are fighting with the things of God to exalt themselves even above the works of God. This passage that is before us, turn back to John chapter 9, this passage is a lengthy dialogue right now in verses 13 to 34, and I hope by God's grace I can get through this passage this morning, this section of it. We already have dealt with verses 1 through 12, and we're in a lengthy dialogue, and if you get nothing else, I want you to see this, that I believe this passage demonstrates just how stubborn, just how hard-hearted, just how spiritually dead man really is. It's unbelievable. In 2 Corinthians, in chapter 2, I want you to catch this. In 2 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 14, we know it well. It says, the natural man does not receive the things of the Spirit of God. He doesn't. We're very familiar, I'd like you to turn there, to Luke 16. We're very familiar with Luke chapter 16. But I want you to see something here. In Luke chapter 16, for those who are not familiar with it, we have the story of the rich man and Lazarus. And both men died. One is found in the presence of God, the other finds himself in hell. And he's, by the way, in Pain. He's in torments. Hell is no joke. Hell is not a party with all my friends. That's not what hell is about at all. It is a real place that will be experienced by real people who have denied the Lord Jesus Christ, have not trusted in him, and who because of their sin will pay the penalty and torment away from the presence of God for all eternity. This rich man found himself in torment and was surprised. He didn't apparently think it was a real place and found out it was. Too late. Could he get from there back to heaven through some process called purgatory? or through maybe a second chance? The answer is no, he could not. In fact, I think it's verse 26. Yes, verse 26 says, look at it. Besides all this, between us and you there is a great chasm fixed so that those who wish to come over from here to you will not be able and that none may cross over from there to us. Listen. 
If you get nothing else out of this morning's message, if you are here this morning and have heard the gospel message over and over and have not yet trusted in Christ and you die in your sins, you will spend eternity in hell away from the presence of God. God's desire. God's love was expressed in sending Jesus Christ to the cross to pay the penalty and price for sin, to satisfy a righteous and a holy God so that your sins could be forgiven through faith in Jesus Christ. And we still have people today, this is why I'm going to this text, in case you thought I just went off in some tangent that's got no relationship here. Why did he go to this text? We are still living in 2010. Did I get the right year? Good. I usually miss. 2010. We are still in 2010 in which time after time people say, if, if I just saw some evidence, if I, if I saw this or if this happened, then I will believe God. They need some tangible evidence. This text shows you something very important that relates to what we're going to see in John chapter 9. Because I want you to see, picking it up in verse 27 of Luke 16, that he says this. And he said, Then I beg you, this is not talking, this is not the words of somebody who thinks it's a joke. This is not someone who is not suffering. This is someone who is surprised by their circumstances in tremendous torment and began to realize something which is absolutely amazing, by the way. That he remembered something. He says, and I beg you, what? Verse 28. In order that he may warn them, what? I skipped over it, watch this. That you send him, that is, this beggar, if you will, this man named Lazarus, to his brothers. Look at it in verse 27. Send him to my father's house. Why? For I have five brothers in order that he may warn them so that they will not come to this place of torment. He knew that back on earth he had five brothers who apparently thought hell was a joke as well, like some of you in this audience may be thinking today. And please send them back. Tell them you saw me. Tell them it's real. If they saw Lazarus come back, watch. He goes on. And he goes on and says that they might not come in here. But Abraham said, verse 29, they have Moses and the prophets. To put it very bluntly to you, they have their Bibles. Specifically, the Old Testament scriptures. Let them hear them. And he appeals. But he said, no, Father Abraham, but if someone goes to them from the dead, they will repent. They need some tangible evidence. Send someone back. Then they'll believe. But he said to him, if they do not listen to Moses and the prophets, they will not be persuaded, even if someone rises from the dead. And by the way, the obvious evidence of that is the Lord Jesus Christ. And what I'm trying to show you in Luke chapter 16, and you can bounce back to John chapter 9, 
is that he makes it very clear that the Word of God is available. God has given revelation for people to know who Jesus Christ is and to believe on him. And the whole gospel, according to John, as we've been seeing over and over and I've been bombarding you with, is to show you that Jesus is the Son of God, that he's the Christ, and that by believing you might have life through his name. That's the whole point of John's exposition of the entire book is so that you might come to believe in Jesus Christ. You have it written. And he's showing time and time again, including in John chapter 9, the works of God. And what you see in John chapter 9 is this incredible, unbelievable, undeniable miracle that has occurred that, according to the text, has never been seen before. That someone been born blind should be made to see. And with all that evidence, do these Pharisees, do these neighbors, do all those around just bow down at the name of Jesus Christ and believe on the Lord Jesus Christ? And the answer is no. And I'm trying to encourage you who are believers this morning so that when you leave here, and you have opportunity to witness for the Lord Jesus Christ, and someone says, just show me this, show me that, you can show them people born blind, you can show them people risen from the dead, you can show them anything, but the heart of man is deceitful, the heart of man is hard, the heart of man is dead. And that is why what he needs is the word of God. Moses and the prophets, as Luke said. John the epistles. And what I'm encouraging you to do is continue to use the Word of God, which is sharper than any two-edged sword. And God will use the Word of God as you have opportunity to witness. I watched and I was praying as one of the men were witnessing to somebody. And I listened carefully, not to critique the, 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 the man that was witnessing, but I listened carefully and I was encouraged when I heard the word of God coming out of that person's mouth because that is what would convince the person who was on the plane to believe, not any other argument. We need to understand that. Do you see that? Do you see those who are lost and see that hell is real if you do and you're not burdened? And that was one of the things that did come out of the conference. If there's no fire in you after that, something's missing. But it's not even going to be miracles that will bring people to Christ. Yeah, there's no way I'm going to get through this text. Even faced with all the evidence, go back to John chapter 9, I think you're there. With all the evidence in the world, man still will willfully reject the work of God. Why? Man thinks he's smarter, man thinks he's more intelligent. Man thinks he's wiser. All of these I could give you scripture references on. Just think of Romans chapter 1 and that's enough. Man thinks he's wiser than God. He would never say that. And he does not see himself as a sinner. That's one of the other things catch this morning in case we don't get through the whole text. Man sees everybody else as a sinner. Remember how it started in John chapter 9 verse 1? And then it get to verse 2, 1 and 2. Whom, who sinned, this man or his mother? They must have sinned. And what I just read to you, what happens with Jesus Christ? Rather than look at the miracle 
and bow down and worship God, they turn around as religious leaders and say, we know this man's a sinner. But they're not pointing at themselves. People fail to see their own sin. And that's actually even true with Christians, by the way. Oftentimes, we're saved by grace, yes. But in our Christian walk, we will point out when someone else fails in the sin in their life, and we know everything about them, and we don't look in the mirror at what is going on in our own hearts. It's very easy to see everybody else's sin. Two main points that I really want to bring out of this text, and we'll see how far we get with it, is the very thing that I've just been demonstrating to you for the last 10 minutes, and that is that man willfully rejects the work of God. But secondly, on an encouraging point, and if we don't get to this, we'll do it next week, but I want to encourage believers from this passage, what a tremendous passage in also showing us how effective your witness can be. The witness of someone who God has worked in their life. As we look at this long dialogue, we see in it, first of all, what's going on in verses 13 and 14. Then, as I have in the outline for you there, there's going to be an interrogation that goes on, and it's going to result in the man being brought before them, then the parents, and then the man a second time. So let's look at verse 1. What's going on in the, uh, verse 13? What's going on in this passage? Verses 13 and 14 bring it out. It says, they brought to the Pharisees the man who was formerly blind. Notice it says they. Who are they? It's the neighbors, verse 8. The ones who had seen him begging, the ones who had seen him already and seen the miracle. And they brought him, that is, the man formerly blind. It identifies. And know that, notice that. It's unmistakable. I'll come back to that term in just a second. But they bring him to the Pharisees. Why? Let me give you a couple of reasons one, it was not uncommon to bring them to the religious leaders. The Pharisees were the religious leaders of the day. And they wanted an explanation. They had just seen a miracle that had taken place that was tremendous. They had never seen anything like this, and they wanted to know what the religious leaders thought of it. I think that's one of the things, because oftentimes when the Lord healed, he sent them back to the Pharisees and said, go show yourself to the priest, go show yourself in the temple, and so forth. That was in accordance with Old Testament law. So I think there was some of that there. But my personal opinion is it was stronger than that. And the second reason is because they faced the possibility of ex excommunication. Why would you say that? Well, we know that from verse uh, 22, because in chapter 9, verse 22, look at it. His parents knew that if anyone confessed him, that is Jesus, to be the Christ, they'd be put out of the synagogue. Don't think that the neighbors didn't know that. They knew that. And they also knew something else that's not in our text. What? We learned it in John chapter 8. Would you look at verse 40? In John chapter 8, verse 40, they knew something else about this, these leaders. What is it? In verse 40, it says, But as it is, you are seeking to kill me, Jesus said. They were seeking to kill the Lord Jesus Christ. And the people knew it. We've seen that throughout the text. The people knew that they wanted Jesus Christ killed. They knew that anyone who confessed him would be thrown out of the synagogue. And because of that, they also wanted to bring him to the Pharisees. So I think both things are really involved. But notice he was formerly blind, and that's what we've been studying. Has it not been the last two weeks? The unmistakable situation. The man was born blind. Remember, I pointed out to you that his, 
disciples walked right by the man, and all they saw was a theological debate. That's what they saw. We spent a whole week on that. And the Lord Jesus Christ showed compassion. He saw the man and ended up dealing with the person in his need. Then there was the unorthodox solution. What happened? As soon as he obeyed what Jesus Christ said, he was healed. And I spent all of last week's message on the fact that we can't put God in a box. God does not do the same thing all the, all the time, the same way. And he didn't do it here. It was an unorthodox way that he did this. Took the clay, put it on his eyes, he spat on it. And then he said, go and obey. He didn't always heal that way. And certainly we got the undeniable results. The man knew it. The neighbors knew it. There was no escaping it. And now we get this additional insight in verse 14. Now it was a Sabbath on the day when Jesus made the clay and opened his eyes. We now learn from verse 14 that the healing took place on the Sabbath. That's why I had the responsive reading in Matthew chapter 12. That was a real bone in the throat of the Pharisees. They had made so many rules for the Sabbath day. Was Jesus Christ violating the Sabbath? Absolutely not. The healing took place on the Sabbath, but all he had violated was their rules, which was not part of the Bible. You will not find any violation of the Scriptures whatsoever. One of the laws that I was able to read about on the Sabbath day and so forth, specifically in the area of healing, was according to the rabbis and the rabbinical writings, you could not heal on the Sabbath day unless it was a life-threatening situation. Obviously, Jesus Christ was violating that. He healed. There was no life-threatening situation. This man had been there all his life, blind. He had been there, sitting there. The Lord could have waited till the next day. Why didn't he? I believe he purposely did it in his sovereign will chose that day, not only the man, but the day, because it was an issue with the Pharisees. And that's the way people are, unless certain things fit into certain religious categories. But we need to go back to the Word of God. This man was formerly blind, and now he was healed on the Sabbath day. Why? Because Jesus Christ is Lord of the Sabbath. And men made the Sabbath day. Why? The Lord made the Sabbath day to benefit man not to be abused by man. So we find now it's a Sabbath day. And we go on, and here we get the first conversation that goes on with the man. Then the Pharisees were asking him, the man comes before him, verse 15, and we get problem number one. Notice this. Then the Pharisees also were asking him again how he received his sight. You notice they don't deny that he did. You say, well, later on they do. Well, that's because they want to deny all the evidence. But they saw that this man could see them now. And they realized that this man could see physically. And they got a problem on their hands. This man has been healed. They don't deny the miracle. They can't deny the miracle, even though they are going to try to do that verbally. Don't kid yourself. Put it in its historical context. They knew who the man was. How do you know that, Pastor Dan? He begged. He begged at the temple. The neighbors knew who he was. They saw him every day. The Pharisees saw who he was every day. And yet they were still going to deny that this was the real man. That may happen, by the way. So I get to it now and don't let it 
not be addressed this morning. That may happen in your life. I'm talking about spiritual. One of the most difficult people to witness to is your family, is your friends. They know you. And many times they will deny. They will know what you were like and they will remember. And even though they see a changed life, what may happen is with all the evidence and so forth, they may still want to deny. That's what these Pharisees are. A miracle was done. That was their first problem. The second problem we already saw was he healed on the Sabbath day. It was not a real violation. And yet, they were making an issue out of the Sabbath day. We find that. So they asked him, and therefore the, some of the Pharisees were saying, this man is not from God. Imagine that. They look at the man, and what are they saying? This man, Jesus, is not from God. They are the religious leaders, and he's not. And by the way, let me give some benefit, if you will, to the Pharisees for our sake. Why would we want to do that? It was good that they were testing. We need to be careful because today there are claims of miracles. There are claims of all kinds of things being done. We are told in Scripture to test the spirits to see whether they are of God. Don't ever forget that. So there was nothing wrong in trying to examine whether the man, Jesus Christ, was really the Messiah. The problem was they were denying the evidence that pointed that way. To examine it was okay. We are to examine things. Do not, listen, do not take for granted when somebody says, praise the Lord, he's done such and so. That doesn't mean he's done it. We are to do the same thing. We are to test. The difference is the Pharisees were lining the test up with what? Rabbinical teachings. We are to line things up with the true standard, the word of God. We ought to test things by the word of God. Because somebody says, praise the Lord, or the Lord has led me to do this. I hear that from Christians all the time. I'm telling you from a pastor's heart. There are times I counsel with people, and people tell me certain things, and I say right to their face, that does not agree with the word of God. But the Lord told me to do it. No, he didn't. He did not tell you to do something contrary to the word of God. He will never do that. And he will never let you abuse the scriptures for his glory by taking other scripture verses out of context and not looking at the whole counsel of God. That's a reminder for every one of us, me as well. We need to be careful. People use religious terms and people are supposed to back out of it because all of a sudden those terms were used. We need to be careful. They were saying... He's not of God, but the reason they said he was not of God, look it, was because he did not keep the Sabbath. Yes, he did. They didn't check the scriptures. He did keep in line with the Sabbath. You read Matthew 12, and because of time, I won't go there. There's example after example of exceptions that were allowed because the Sabbath and the concept of not working on the Sabbath had nothing to do with healing. So we need to be careful. We are not to judge by our standards, but by the word of God. That is why, by the way, in the book of Matthew, you have continually this expression from the Lord Jesus Christ. You have heard that it hath been said, but I say unto you. Do you know why the Lord repeats that over and over? Because people had taken the word of God and made it mean what they want it to mean. And what had happened 
was even the people and the leaders of the day were living by not the word of God, but by their own standards when they had twisted the word of God. I'll tell you something. Most of you that are here today know me well. That is one thing I hope to God will never happen in my life. I pray with all my heart that when the day that I stand before God, Jesus Christ will never be able to say to me, you added to the word of God or took from it. Because I see many Christians who are doing that. That's why if I look at the word of God and I don't know what it means, that's what I'm going to tell you. We need to be careful. They were not careful. They were accusing the Messiah of not being from God. That's how far it had gone. What was the result? The results were these divisions among them. Notice that. He goes on. Verse 17. Uh, sorry, verse uh, 16 still. Because of the Sabbath. How can this man, you notice what they say. Others were saying, how can this man who is a sinner perform such signs? And there was a division among them. Among who? Now it's the leaders. There first was division among the neighbors. Now there's divisions among the leaders. Why? Because they're unable to line up with is being said with what actually took place. This miracle from God. So this is absolutely amazing, probably as far as we're going to get today. But absolutely amazing when you come to verse 17. So now, and I find it fascinating, this was also pointed out, but I find it fascinating that he does go back and you see them call him a blind man again. <laughs> the Pharisees go back to the blind man. These are the scholars. These are the religious leaders who the people brought him to to find out who is this man, Jesus Christ? Look at what he's done. Who is he? And now what do they do? They take the blind man and say, basically, we don't know. We don't think he's from God. You tell us. Who's this guy? This guy's been blind all his life. This guy knows nothing. And they go to him and they say, what do you think? Who do you think he is? Look what he says. He's got more discernment than they do. He says... He's a prophet. I like what Carson says on this. <laughs> Carson says this. The blind man, formerly blind man, eyes are opening a lot wider. You're getting bigger. And while I like what Carson says, I take it from this perspective. His spiritual eyes are beginning to open. This man has been opened up and had his physical eyes opened. And what I see here in verse 17 is the calling of God. Because it's going to get down by the time we're done, Lord willing, next week. It's going to get down to the situation where what's going to happen is the man's going to come to faith in Jesus Christ. This is the calling. The man is beginning to see with his spiritual eyes. That darkened, dead heart is beginning to open up. And he can begin to see that, you know, the evidence is before me. I can see. I couldn't see before. They're analyzing who this person was. Remember this, and it is my personal opinion, that he has not seen Jesus Christ because he went, was told to go down. And he, was, he obeyed, and then he came back seeing, and Jesus Christ was gone. 
And he's going to have a later conversation in which he's with Jesus Christ. And Jesus Christ is going to talk to him and say that basically he's the Messiah. And he's going to say, who is he, Lord, that I might believe? I'm the one. And he believed. But his eyes are beginning to open up spiritually and saying, this man has got to be the prophet or a prophet. He knew that the prophets of old had evidence that they were from God. And he knew the evidence in his life. Let me close with this for today. And we're really not doing justice to the passage because it all needs to be taken together. So I'm going to have to finish that next week, 18 to 34. But see this much, that all the evidence that was before the Pharisees, and it was going to come with the parents, and what's going to come with the man a second time, they absolutely refused to believe. They willingly denied. And I bring it back to this. Maybe you haven't seen a blind man raised from the dead. Maybe it's just been that you've seen a life of a relative changed. Maybe it's just been that you've heard one that loves you bring the word of God to you and show you that Jesus Christ is the Messiah and he's asked you or she's asked you to believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. But you're looking for more evidence. There is no more. The word of God was given so that you could hear the message of God. This that we just displayed before you in visual form by way of communion was a visual aid to show you that out of every nation, out of every background, out of every color of skin, God is calling out a people to himself because of the work of Jesus Christ, who satisfied a holy God by first of all coming into the world and taking on flesh, and then going to the cross of Calvary and dying and paying the penalty for sin. And God's appeal is believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and thou shalt be saved. God's given you the evidence in the word of God. And just like in Luke, where he was concerned about his brothers, he was told that they have Moses and the prophets. They have the Bible. If they don't believe that, they won't believe all the evidence. You will go on in your days looking for evidence after evidence after evidence, and you won't come to Christ if that's all you're looking for. You need to believe in the Lord Jesus Christ because the word of God is true. Because the word of God has said that all men have sinned and come short of the glory of God. There is none righteous, no, not one. The wages of sin is death. You are facing condemnation. And the only ones that do not have condemnation are those who are in Christ Jesus. Those who have believed upon him. And I beg you, as the rich man was begging, I beg you to believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, that you be saved today. That you be saved today. Trust in the Lord right there in the pew. Believe on him. He is the Messiah. These religious leaders had all the evidence in the world and denied it. And I'll give you a little insight. It's part of my message next week. And by the way, guys, it was in here. And that is, the frightening thing is, not a single person ever rejoices about the miracle that was done. Not the neighbors. Not the Pharisees. Not the disciples, 
and not even the parents. They were so caught up that they couldn't even see what God had done and didn't even rejoice. My friend, if you know the Lord Jesus Christ, as we talked about this morning already, you have a lot to joy about and to sing. There absolutely should never be a person in the pew unless you've lost your voice like Pastor Chris did or you're deathly sick that should not sing praises to God and ought to be serving the king that they belong to. If you know the Lord Jesus Christ, you ought to love him with all your heart and serve him with joy. We'll have to pick it up here next week. I do want to get through and take a look at the parents and because there's so, so much here that's rich. Let's close in prayer. Our Father in God, I thank you and praise you that we find in the face of Jesus Christ, God Almighty, the image of the invisible God. I thank you and praise you that you sent him to this earth, that he is the mercy seat, has satisfied your righteousness forever towards sin. I thank you and praise you that you have chosen through the instrumentality of men to record your word so that, Father, we would know how it is that man can have a right relationship with you. Father, it is our sin that has caused us to be cast out of thy presence. And through the word of God, you've revealed to us that through the person of Christ and his completed work and through faith in that person and work, we can be restored to relationship with God. Dead men can be raised. Dead hearts can be opened up. Eyes that are blind can see through taking you at your word. And Father, I pray that if there be any in our audience that are looking for signs, they're looking for wonders, they're looking to put things off, help them to realize that they are not even guaranteed tomorrow. Help them right there in the pew to settle the issue this morning. To believe on the Lord Jesus Christ that they might be saved. Father, for those of us that know you, it is true, I know in my own heart, is so often go through life day by day, celebrate a communion like this, read, have devotions, get into the word of God and rejoice. Then 10 minutes later, we're walking our way and forget the glorious things that you're doing. Forget the joy that we should be having and how we should be rejoicing in the Lord Jesus Christ. Father, help every believer to be renewed in their spirits, to see you afresh, to, Father, desire to follow you and just announce to others the glorious things that you're doing in our lives, in our church, in other people's lives. Might we not be so blind, even as believers, not to recognize the work that you're doing in and among us, And might we sing praise to your name in a glorious way that you might get all the glory. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.